Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes and Jonah Goldberg. We finally got rid of David French, guys. Congratulations to everyone. Just kidding. David's on a plane to D.C. for a special advisory opinions taping, so he'll be back next week. Uh, We got plenty to talk about. The gas tax holiday proposed by the Biden administration uh, with raging inflation continuing the January 6th hearings, how they're going, and politics, potpourri, immigration, gun bill, latest elections. Let's dive right in. President Biden uh, had been ruminating, if you will, on a gas tax, finally coming out and announcing that he wanted Congress to pass a gas tax holiday for the summer, expiring in early September. Met with uh, not a lot of enthusiasm from his own party, Nancy Pelosi saying she would see what the consensus was. Joe Manchin in the Senate saying no, he would not vote for it, making it basically dead on arrival in Congress. Uh, In the past, plenty of politicians have called gas tax holidays gimmicks, in part because of what the gas tax is and what it isn't. Uh, Gas tax is, of course, what it sounds like. It's about 18 cents on the gallon right now, as I understand it. But gas is a commodity based on supply and demand. And by getting rid of the tax, you in theory, well, you definitely don't change the supply issue, but you in theory just up demand, which plenty of economists and energy sector experts have said will actually just increase the cost of gas to about what it was uh, without the gas tax, or rather with the gas tax. And so this will have no particular effect on consumers trying to buy gas. It could increase uh, profits margins for energy producers, and it will have no effect on supply. Energy producers saying this is useless, like please don't do anything with the gas tax. And also the sort of schizophrenic reaction from the Biden White House that on the one hand, they want energy producers to massively increase short-term output, but are not willing to do any of the things to help energy producers with long-term output, the things that energy producers would actually need to invest in, even for short-term output, um, they say it doesn't make any sense. They want all the benefits of low gas prices now with all the benefits of fighting climate change now, or at least being able to say that they are. Steve, let's start with the basics. The idea that you would let then, if it did lower prices, let a gas tax holiday expire two months before a midterm election. Yeah. Uh, this seems like politics all the way down, but not very good politics. Yes, seems problematic. I mean, it, it's really hard to understand what the White House thinks it's doing here. You you could see an argument at the most basic level that the White House political shop cooked up a case for a gas tax holiday just to allow themselves to say the president's doing something. He He feels your pain. He understands that this is the problem. If you look at polling, it's not just inflation, but specifically Uh, gas and what people are paying for gas that has people as concerned as they are about the economy. And theoretically, you know, Joe Biden and Democrats, if they were to embrace this, can say, look, the president is doing everything he can do. Um, The problem with that, as you point out, and as we pointed out in uh, the morning dispatch uh, Thursday morning, 
is that this it, they're not doing anything at all um, to increase the long-term supply in part, I think for deeply held ideological reasons, because they believe in that, that limiting fossil fuel production is a key part of fighting climate change and have been saying so for years. I mean, this is something Joe Biden campaigned on. It's near and dear to the parts of many on the democratic, in the democratic base. And that's the case. I mean, remember there are these clips that, that play, uh, about Joe of Joe Biden talking about wanting to bring an end to the fossil fuel industry, um, talking about new limits on on supply, and there are specific things that the Biden administration did to to do that. So their policies are in part at fault for some of this. I mean, there are all sorts of other supply chain issues. There are big picture global issues, but there, there certainly Ukraine and, and Russia, but. You can't ignore the fact that the Biden administration said, we want to do this. We want to limit the supply in a pretty dramatic way because we think it's important for, for climate change. And now they are having to deal with the political consequences of their own policy decisions. What I find most curious, and I'm interested in, in both of your views on this, immediately, even before President Biden made this announcement, you had Nancy Pelosi saying, in effect, she was against it. And as you point out, Sarah, you have Joe Manchin expressing skepticism. He says he's not going to support it. And other Democrats publicly saying this is not the answer, including Democrats who have said this for a while. Remember Barack Obama back a decade ago, which said this is this is a gimmick. This isn't a real a real thing. What what should we infer or what can we learn about the White House political operation if they have members of it, their own party? disparaging what they had teed up as a pretty serious policy rollout before it's even announced. To propose this without having Nancy Pelosi on board is baffling to me. To, without having Nancy Pelosi have a statement that the White House has already seen, that she's going to cheer it. You know, they understand that she can't get all of her members lined up, but they need a strong statement from the Speaker of the House uh, Joe Manchin, I sort of put to a side, clearly the relationship between Joe Manchin and the White House is strained. Fair enough. Um, I still think it would be smart to take his temperature before doing anything. Just again, if you want to get stuff done. But the Nancy Pelosi part, where it appeared that Nancy Pelosi hadn't coordinated at all with the White House. Right. Or worse, that this was the coordinated idea from the White House. Uh, crazy. I thought Carl Rove had an interesting uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal Biden got the energy market he wanted. And like Steve, it just backs up everything you just said. He runs through uh, on his first day in office, Biden canceled Keystone XL pipeline, halted new leases in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, his first week in office, he banned new oil and gas leases on federal lands and water. In June, he shut down exploration on existing leases in Anwar. In October, he increased the regulatory uh, burdens on building pipelines and other infrastructure. This February, he limited leasing in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve. Um, a federal judge enjoined some of that, but nevertheless, it had a huge impact on, again, energy companies have to make long-term investments. Uh, it's a boom and bust industry. Uh, so he noted that daily U.S. oil production uh, was at 12.29 million barrels in 2019, skipping the pandemic, obviously. Uh Right now, it's 11.85, which is a significant drop. 
Um, also noted that the profits last year were 4.7% compared with Microsoft, 39%, Facebook, 33%, Google, 30%. Um, that was fun. Jonah, uh, the other part of this to me that's particularly baffling is that the gas tax, pay, gas tax pays for stuff. Like we use that money. So if you do a gas tax holiday, you still have to pay for the roads. So all you're doing is spending money you don't have, which we're already doing a lot of. Yeah, I mean, this is this is in many respects just another gimmick, like releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It gives you something to talk about. That's about it. You know, I mean, I'm not, uh, look, I mean, look. Yes. At least that was supply side. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, part of the problem with the supply side thing, and, and this is part of the problem with the way Biden talks about all of this stuff, is that it's, the the price of oil is only part of the problem. It's the refining capacity that is the other part of the problem. And you can bring down the price of oil. You're still going to have those bottlenecks with the refineries. And, um, you know, on the political side, I just see this as a, you know, an extension of something that we've talked about a few times around here, which is that this White House often seems like it is geared to the daily messaging cycle on cable news rather than a long-term sort of strategic vision. And I think the Biden in particular just has specific problems. I mean, we haven't talked too much about how the fact that like, he's just, he really does increasingly seem too old and that even the sort of sympathetic media is starting to sort of talk about how he's too old and that, you know, and it seems mean to talk about, but it's nonetheless, I think a fact. And so when he, when he talks about this stuff, it's like he's stripped the gears of his credibility and he can put in whatever gear he wants. It just doesn't get much traction. And, um, you know, he did this video where he's showing horrible things in Ukraine and, and, and trying to say that anyone who's complaining about high gas prices would is in favor of Putin killing people. And it's just a dumb cable news driven, Twitter driven messaging strategy. Um, and on the actual policy stuff, I mean, I think Sarah, you know, hit on the, the the key part is that oil companies need certainty. They need predictability because they're setting prices and setting investments not based on today's price of oil, but what the price of oil might be in 18 months or three years. And you have to have some, and when you have a, an administration flatly saying they want to destroy your industry. Um, it tends to cause a certain amount of conservatism in your investment strategy. Yeah. And um, I just find that there's so much, on the policy side, there's so much dishonesty and dissembling from the administration on on sort of every front. You know, I mean, like, first of all, oil companies don't own gas stations for the most part. Exxon doesn't own any of them. Um, they got out of that business. You know why? Because profit margins in in, in, in gas stations are razor thin. It's like 1% or 2%. The way to think about gas stations is like movie theaters. Movie theaters make almost no money off of ticket prices. They make money off of the popcorn you buy to watch the movie. Gas stations make, don't make almost no money off of gasoline. They make money off of the stuff you go, off the beef jerky you buy. And um, I do buy a lot of beef jerky. Well, I know. Like, you are like a major profit center for the oil industry. Well, when they ha the, the Wisconsin gas stations have the special, you know, homemade beef jerky stands, so you can go in yeah. and get it. I mean, I wouldn't call it fresh, but I mean, it's awfully good. <laughs> and and they have just that entire case of cheese products. 
So cheese curds, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bob McNally, founder and president of Rapidin Energy, uh, told Axios yesterday, I need more oil right now. I need more refining capacity right now, says the White House. But also, says the White House, we will not bless new long-term infrastructure. Yeah. That's where the disconnect is. This is the problem. Let me just read this quick paragraph from, from the Morning Dispatch. We had an item in the Morning Dispatch on this today, as I mentioned, and it's it's just so good. It captures the, the dissonance. Um, Declan Garvey put this together. He, he wrote, Biden, during different points in his administration and his campaign, Biden has both guaranteed his administration will, quote, end fossil fuel, unquote, and written letters to oil executives asking them to, quote, take immediate actions to increase the supply of gasoline, diesel, and other refined product, unquote. He has both signed executive orders attempting to pause new oil and gas leases on public lands and chastised oil and gas companies for not drilling more. Last week, Biden convened a meeting of international leaders to discuss efforts to limit global emissions and accelerate the transition to clean energy. Next month, he'll visit Saudi Arabia in an effort to convince the kingdom to boost its oil production. I mean, that in you know three sentences captures what we've seen from the Biden administration. And no short-term three-month gas tax holiday is going to solve that problem for them politically. And it's certainly not going to solve the economic dissonance that's making it so hard for uh, people to invest in, in increasing supply. Interesting info out of New York, because they did suspend their gas tax uh, on June 1. The retail price of gasoline was four ninety three. Two weeks after the 16 cent per gallon tax holiday went to effect, the average price was five dollars and four cents. Of course, gas prices can go up you know, for other reasons. But the point is getting rid of the gas tax did not change anything for New Yorkers. The price still went up. Um, All right. So this seems dead on arrival politically. It seems like if anything, it was a net loss to even announce it from the White House because everyone says it's a gimmick. Uh, It's not going to happen. So where does that leave Biden on energy prices as people head into the summer thinking maybe they shouldn't go drive to grandma's house. Frankly, I think he gets the same benefit out of it, whether it passed or not, just because he gets to have the soundbite, which is to say very little benefit, but he gets to have the soundbite saying, I'm doing this. People aren't going to remember whether it passed or not. It's the, the people are going to move on. I think it is the most interesting thing about it is that it's, a, I mean, sort of the contra- counterfactual poses it. If Biden's poll numbers were 60%, would Democrats be saying this is a dumb gimmick that we're not even going to vote on? I mean, I think it just shows you it, it, it would still be a dumb gimmick, right? But I mean, the, policy-wise, it wouldn't be any different. But politically, I think the fact that Democrats feel perfectly free to say, eh, whatever, dude, um, is a really bad sign for the Biden White House. Yeah, and and they can, they can say that, I think. Look, I, I actually don't Yes, it's a gimmick. Yes, it doesn't solve long-term problems. I don't have a problem with with a brief suspension of of the gas tax. I mean, I, I think if it were something that addressed a specific short-term problem, like there was a spike that we could identify that that was likely to disappear in three months, and this would help people get through, and it was a challenging time, and prices are 50% higher than they were at the beginning of the year, fair enough, do it. The, I think the problem is the, the lack of long-term solution. And I think Democrats are wary of investing in something politically from the Biden White House that isn't likely to have a 
to solve the problem, to really address the problem. Because I think that then it's very easy to see where this is a medium and long-term net negative. It makes Biden look totally powerless. So he does this thing. Gas prices come down for, for a little bit. But if they return to, to where they were when he did it, this is not going to look like he's solving the problem. And even if they don't, again, 18 cents a gallon, I'll take it every day of the week. But e- even if gas prices don't return to where they are now, but remain high, Joe Biden, this is, it's, it's almost impossible to see this as a win for Joe Biden. Like, how does this work? How does, the, how does the proposal work in his favor? I don't see it. And I think Democrats don't see it either. All right. Next up, the January 6th hearings continue. Steve, I thought it was um, interesting because when you ask someone about January 6th, I think most people conjure up images of a violent mob storming the Capitol. And the question turns on, did Donald Trump incite that violent mob to storm the Capitol and uh, disrupt the peaceful transfer of power? I, I think that's a relevant question. I think that there's actually not great evidence in terms of criminal incitement, for instance, um, that that happened. And that's sort of what the hearing started with. But what it has done since then, to me, has been far more important. And to me, what we should think of when we say the term January 6th is actually what happened in the run up to January 6th, where you have the president uh, with legal advisors trying to come up with a way to ignore an American election that had occurred so that they can stay in power for however much longer, regardless of the results of that election. And I say regardless, now they thought, um, I think that many of them truly believed that there were election shenanigans, but to have testimony that John Eastman understood that zero out of nine members of the Supreme Court would agree with his legal arguments, for instance, Zero uh, is pretty relevant to whether you think you have a, a, a legal argument for staying in office. Um, and then what's what happened in Georgia? Those seem way more important to me when you talk about self-government and the perpetuation of it and uh, the transfer of power. The mob is almost a little bit of a sideshow, frankly. I want those people to be, they have been, hundreds have been indicted, they're in trials. It's not that I'm saying that's not important. It is, but that's like already happening. This part where Donald Trump believed he could continue to stay in office regardless of the election, that to me is a way more interesting part of these hearings. And I'm wondering why they didn't, I don't know, that hasn't seemed like the theme. The theme still seems to be on trying to meet the narrative where it already was, which on January 6th, violent mob, the primetime stuff that they did was all about that. That's what got 21 million people. I'm frustrated by that. Yes. So I strongly agree with your first point. And that's been something of a theme, of course, on, on this podcast. We've talked about this a lot. It's much more about the coordinated, choreographed attempt to steal an election than it was about the spasm of violence on a particular day at a particular time, whether or not Donald Trump incited it. I think and he forget stealing it. the election for a second. To stay in power regardless. Correct. To stay right. in the White House, which is different. Stealing an election is that you wanted the election, you, you were going to have the election come out differently. They they also tried to do that, but they, they didn't care. They wanted right. to stay in the White House whether they were able to steal the election or not. 
Right. So I, I agree strongly with your point on that. I disagree strongly with your your point that that's not been the focus of the committee. I think there was a brief preview at the end of that original primetime two-hour uh, session where they played the video, the, the additional 10-minute video that they put together with new footage of the actual attack. And Liz Cheney mentioned it briefly in her prepared remarks. But really, the case that she made, I think, far more effectively than, than Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th committee, was this is about so much more than that day. This is really about blocking the peaceful transfer of power. And in that sense, this is totally unprecedented and something we haven't seen. And that's that's why she believes Donald Trump is a threat to the republic. Um, if you if you look at the hearings that we've had so far, they have almost entirely ignored what happened on January 6th. That's coming. There are going to be uh, two additional hearings. Looks, there's, there's a hearing taking place Thursday, today when we're recording, um, that will focus on this, a scheme at the Justice Department that we've talked about before. Then there are two additional hearings that have now been bumped back to July after Congress's recess, in part, they say, because they've accumulated more evidence uh, to make this case. One of those two hearings will focus on the actual attack, and I think they, they will uh, go to great lengths to show that the attack that happened on January 6th was not separate and spontaneous, but was in fact, you know, a culmination of what we have seen sort of, it's part of the through line. It's part of the broader narrative. It was, you know, with all of the testimony that we heard about the threats to Mike Pence and the efforts to pressure Mike Pence to, to uh, in effect, decide the election on his own, which he understood he couldn't do, the January 6th violence was a part of that, was trying to get him to to back off. And the fact that they continued to make calls even after the violence, trying to get uh, senators to slow down the process, I think makes that case. The, the, a couple of very interesting big picture things about the, the committee. Um, and you know, we, we talked about this pretty early in the process. I think it was very smart of the committee to make Republicans the centerpiece of this. Virtually everything that we have heard, aside from uh, the the very compelling testimony of uh, two election workers on Tuesday from Georgia, has been critiques of the Trump campaign, the Trump effort to block peaceful transfer of power with great detail, uh, dispassionate, uh, mostly non-emotional, and almost all of it coming from Republicans, including Republicans who strongly wanted Donald Trump to be president over Joe Biden. That has, I think, really taken the air out of what was what House Republicans had telegraphed as their main critique of the committee, which is that it's a partisan committee. It is a partisan committee. It has more Democrats than Republicans. It has people like Adam Schiff, Schiff, who has proven himself a partisan, uh, an exceptional partisan in a number of different ways. We, We saw Adam Schiff asking some questions the other day. He has not been a a focal point of these hearings. And instead, you've heard primarily from Republicans. The other thing I think that has been um, that's that's interesting and has made this much more um, significant than I think many people anticipated going in is that it's it is mostly a recitation, a just the facts recitation of what happened. And to your early point, Sarah, it puts details behind what I think people looked at, you know, this, what was going on? Why is Trump lying about this? Why are, you know, we'd get a, we'd get a, you know, a clip of a phone call with Raffensperger. We'd 
hear about something else, but, but it didn't really make much sense. And what I think the committee has done pretty effectively is lay out that this was a plan, that they, they were acting on a strategy. Now, they were very competent for the most part in doing it. And some of the things they thought they were going to be able to accomplish were, were kind of laughable. But this was a real plan. And, and and the extent to which people appreciate that, I do think it will have a, a longer term impact that many people didn't think. I mean, you have people who are very critical of the committee from the beginning, um, sort of changing their tune and saying, wow, this is a pretty this is a pretty effective presentation. All right. So I want to take that and hijack this a little bit and ask a question to both of you guys, because I am truly I can talk around or I can talk at square or even rhomboid. Um, uh if you watch Fox's daytime coverage of the hearings, it's perfectly fine, you know, more or less. It's not Tucker Carlson-esque. They have serious people on. They, I, I would argue that they focus way too much on the, quote-unquote, unfairness of the partisan makeup of the thing and focus way too much on uh, how either either Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy or both, but mostly Nancy Pelosi screwed up because, you know, Jonathan Turley will say, these are very compelling witnesses. Nancy Pelosi made a mistake not allowing Republicans on here because Republicans wouldn't be able to rebut it, right? And you hear the reverse thing from Donald Trump himself recently that Kevin McCarthy screwed up because we need Republicans on there to rebut it. I think Trump is wrong on that because the kind of rebuttals that Trump wants would hurt them. So the question is, would it did Kevin McCarthy in fact screw up? Did he make a mistake by not allowing so they you know Pelosi kicked off just so people understand? Pelosi said you can't have Jim Jordan and Jim Banks because they are trollish House Freedom Caucus Trump, you know, musk sniffers. And um, but you could have the other ones that you want, and you can put two other Republicans on there if you want. And McCarthy said, no, if you're going to tell me how to pick my people, I'm going to pull all of my people. So the only, uh, so Cheney and Kinzinger are in effect Pelosi appointees on, on the committee. Now there are a bunch of people who think Kevin McCarthy screwed up because there are, you could have good faith Republicans on there pushing back at parts of the narrative, a point that Sarah made recently. Um, and that adversary, and there are good faith arguments that a more adversarial committee would make it more compelling because you would have a better process for finding the truth. I agree with the adversarial point. Fine. But is this better or worse than what we would have gotten if McCarthy had been able to appoint people? Because I, the idea of Republicans cross-examining the, the two black ladies uh, who are the poll workers, the mind reels at how badly that could go for Republicans. The idea that Republicans could really swat down Brad Raffensperger and Gabriel Sterling and, and, and Rusty Bowers, I'm very skeptical of. And so is having the fig leaf of saying this is partisan and we didn't even get to push back on all this stuff better for Republicans? Because the, plan, the strategy was to make this a partisan crap festival. And, um, and they get that talking point. I don't know how effective it is because the witnesses are compelling and they're all Republicans. So... Is this the best case scenario McCarthy could have gotten or would it have been better for McCarthy and the Republicans if there were more Trump-friendly Republicans on it? So I want to uh, remind slash qualify what you said about what I said about the adversarial process. It's not that I said it would be better for Republicans. I said it no, would no, be better right, for right. me. 
Yeah, I said, uh, that, I said that there's a good for, faith argument for an adversarial yes. thing. That's what I meant by you. Yeah. I just want to be clear that, in fact, I don't think it would be better for Republicans. Uh, I think that it is smart if you want something, if you want a hearing like this to get a lot of attention, to have an adversarial nature to it. So I actually think it probably would have been better for the Liz Cheney's and the Adam Kinzinger's and the other people on the committee. They want this to get the maximum amount of attention. Having controversy and conflict would help with that. It would, in addition, I think, help in a truth-finding process, separate out some of the um, high-minded narrative they all agree with, which like, with something like, oh, actually, there is no really good pushback. Like Brad has answers to that, um, that I think would be really helpful for someone like me. Okay. Now what is actually good for Republicans? As you said, Donald Trump thinks Kevin McCarthy made a mistake. He is, you know, whacking McCarthy over this on a near daily basis at this point. Uh, I don't think he's, I don't even know that Trump really believes that, but it sure sounds nice to say, we would have really good pushback if only Kevin hadn't mm-hmm. betrayed me in this way. And the way we kind of know that there's not good pushback is that we haven't seen any pushback on cable news. Mm-hmm. Where are those people, the Republican congressmen, even the Jim Jordans, saying, here are the questions I would have asked. Here's what they don't have answers to. Here's what they misled, misled you on. Here's the facts that aren't coming out. I haven't seen any of that. So... I think this is probably the best case from a partisan interest for the Republicans. I think it has not been the best for the committee. Um, I think it has not been the best for the American people because of that. But I think Donald Trump is certainly winning the day because he gets to have it both ways. He gets to imply that there's some amazing pushback that's not getting made and not have to actually have anyone go try to make that case. So... Yeah, once again, Donald Trump has found the way to win <laughs> again. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 agree with, I agree with that. I, th- I think the challenge for Republicans and for Trump in, in pushing people to defend him is that even people as servile and spineless as Kevin McCarthy, they don't want to make Trump's defense on Trump's terms. Right. Right. Like if they were going to make any kind of a defense, it would be a distraction defense. It would be Nancy Pelosi didn't get the security that the Capitol needed that day. It would be Democrats are ignoring these three or four things that provide important context. And therefore, they're I mean, it would be it would be sort of a a, um, a version of the this is all partisan, but they would just be making it as as part of the committee. Trump wants them to defend him on the, the merits, he wants them to say the election was stolen. And they're not going to say that. I mean, if anything has become clear, I mean, I think it was clear based on 18 months of investigation. We have to imagine that the 2020 election has been investigated as much as just about anything other than the Kennedy assassination in the past 50 years. There have been dozens and dozens and dozens of investigations. There have been investigations that have looked at this at the national level, there have been investigations that have looked at these claims at the state level. It's totally and completely preposterous for anyone to suggest at this point that the election was actually stolen. Donald Trump is making that argument. I don't think Republicans want to make that argument. If you think back to the the ostensible reason that Kevin McCarthy backed the ouster of Liz Cheney as the number three Republican in the House of Representatives, he claimed it was because she was too backward looking. <laughs> It was a silly argument at the time. Um, I don't think even Kevin McCarthy, who's a a very uh, bad liar, believed it when he 
made the argument. Um, but I do think that there's some truth. You have a core group of Republicans who's willing, they're willing to sort of fight for Trump in a generic sense. But I really don't think they want to be making specific arguments about specific claims that Donald Trump is making uh, or wants them to make. Think back to his first response to the committee. It was this 12-page statement pushing back on some of the the claims that had been rebutted by the, the committee and just recycling these things that have been long discredited. I don't think Republicans really want to be in that business. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe $10,000 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. Let's do some political potpourri. We had elections on Tuesday. Immigration numbers are coming out of the southern border. I just all-time high, breaking all-time high, breaking all-time high of folks uh, both attempting to cross the border and successfully crossing the border as well. And we have the gun bill in the Senate. Jonah, pick your potpourri. Ambrosia with daffodils. Um, oh, that sounds lovely. Um, oh, that different potpourri. Sorry. Uh, I think the gun thing is interesting. I think it remains to be seen whether it will actually pass, but I think it's it's a... So far, it's a good sign. You have 14 Republicans at least voting to move forward. John Cornyn getting massively booed at the Texas Republican Convention. Then again, those folks also voted to at least look into seceding from the union, called President Biden the acting president. Uh, But, you know, not, not unimportant that John Cornyn, the senior senator from Texas, gets booed repeatedly at his own convention called a traitor. Yeah, I think that's significant. They also, you know, called the election illegitimate and they said that, uh, and and they took out the bold position against yeah. homosexuality that kind of went away, I thought, 35, 40 years ago. But Eddie, anyway, they're, they're an interesting bunch. Um, and so it's interesting that he was booed. It's also interesting that he doesn't care. Um, and he has moved forward, um, which I think, again, is a good sign. Um, um, I've said it on here before, I think, you know, uh, Senator Murphy is, has the right idea um, where he says, I want to send a signal that Republicans can vote on reasonable gun measures without it uh, ending their careers and to sort of shatter the myth of, of inviability of any uh, gun safety, which is like this term that people are falling back on because no one wants to call it gun control um, legislation. And I think it's going to, I think that part's going to work. The real question for me is whether or not Democrats in the house so muck up the bill when it gets to the house that it makes it unpassable in the Senate, um, which I think is a real possibility. And, and um, at the very least, I mean, you only need like 10, what, 10, 
Democrats sent AOC types to say, this doesn't go nearly far enough. We're not going to vote for it. And you could see it failing in the House, which um, um, would be an interesting sort of political problem for the Biden administration, for Democrats generally, that it's the Democrats who are holding up any progress on on gun stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, do I agree with every, do I think every provision in the thing is, is, is great? No, but you know, I'm, I'm persuaded on the red flag laws, even though we can't call them red flag laws. I think the boyfriend loophole thing is a little overwrought, but whatever. Uh, and I think generally that this would be progress and, um, it would be political progress as well. And it's just, it, to me, it is interesting to see how there are certain interests on the left and the right who have a vested interest in thwarting, you know, sort of modest progress on, on this kind of issue. Steve, why don't you talk about what you found so interesting on Tuesday's primaries? Yeah, I mean, there were some interesting results. None of them are, are the sort of big headline results that um, we've seen in primaries in Ohio and, and um, the, res- the original results in, in Georgia and elsewhere. But there were some interesting um, takeaways. Uh, Donald Trump backed two candidates in Georgia for House races who not only lost in their GOP primaries, but were totally destroyed in their GOP primaries. Vernon Jones, who was running in the 10th congressional district, um, Jake Evans running in the 6th congressional district, they were defeated soundly. Uh, Mike Collins defeated Vernon Jones. Uh, Collins is a former Democrat, um, or sorry, Jones is a former Democrat. Collins is a, is a trucking company executive and Trump backed Jones. Collins beat Jones 75 to 25 in that ballpark. Um, Brian Kemp continues to, uh, sort of flex his political muscles in Georgia, having, uh, endorsed Collins ahead of this, this runoff. So you saw, I think, further evidence that um, Donald Trump is just not as powerful or influential, at least in Georgia, as we might have expected him to be. There are all sorts of reasons, I think, that we can uh, imagine for that. I do think the the sort of long memory and the January 5th, 2021 um, special elections in, in, in Georgia where Donald Trump went on January 4th and talked about Donald Trump rather than really campaigning for the, the two Republicans, which cost Republicans the majority in the Senate. I think that, that Georgians have a long, a long memory there. Um, and then there was also a race in Virginia um, where Donald Trump did not, uh, his favorite candidate did not win. And then in Alabama, Katie Britt, the former chief of staff to Richard Shelby, senator from Alabama, won the race as expected. She was endorsed late by Donald Trump, um, who had originally endorsed Mo Brooks, who spoke at the Stop the Steal rally, was a Republican member of the Freedom Caucus, um, and was originally one of Trump's sort of favorites, uh, later was not one of Donald Trump's favorites. None of that means, of course, that Donald Trump is not tremendously influential in the Republican Party. He is. He remains. So I think you can see by the eagerness that these a lot of these candidates uh, have had to to get his endorsement, that he remains a a huge factor. But it isn't the case that uh, once you win his endorsement, particularly in a Republican primary, that seals your your victory. And I think that was um, that was sort of the assumption 
conventional wisdom even just a few months ago, and we're seeing that it's that his grasp is a little more tenuous than we might have imagined. There's also additional polling out this week. There was a New Hampshire poll uh, that included Ron DeSantis, uh, where Ron DeSantis was ahead of Donald Trump in a in a in a head-to-head primary matchup. There are other indications that um, that his his power, while it's pretty significant for the base, that it might not be as as strong as people assumed it would be a few months ago. And lastly, immigration. So last month, the Customs and Border Patrol reported 239,000 encounters in the month of May. Uh, Only 1,600 of those were placed in the Remain in Mexico program, where they have to wait on the other side of the border to file their asylum claims. So the vast, vast majority, um, you know, being being either detained in this country, uh, let go with a hearing date in this country, not detained at all in this country. I think this is a huge political issue for both parties heading into November and one that's not getting a lot of coverage because it's not the number one issue. The number one issue, absolutely, it's going to be inflation and gas, those two sort of being connected to one another. Uh, this is a distant second in a lot of ways, but I think it is number two. And uh, I think we're seeing that even in the results in that Texas special election to some extent, not necessarily because the Republican won. And I've talked about why, like, I think both sides are overreading uh, that part of the special election. But the Texas 34th district voted 23 points for Barack Obama in 2012, 23 points for Hillary Clinton. In 2016, four points for Joe Biden in 2020. And then Republicans were able to win by seven, eight points in that special election uh, with all the caveats about the money spent, that it's only six months, the Democrats didn't play, all of that. Um, I think I think that the lack of coverage on immigration will not affect how important it is to voters out there in November. I think it absolutely still will be. More to come on that. All right, we're going to wrap with um, a little twist on Not Worth Your Time because there's two things that I just think aren't worth Stephen Jonah's time, but I found them very worth my time. Uh, First up, (laughs) big news in college sports. The Ohio State University was finally able to trademark the word the after being initially rejected. So it is now officially part of their name, the Ohio State University. And it appears that you do have to emphasize it when you say it on ESPN. That will be part of the trademark. Uh, Most importantly, though, (laughs) we have breaking news about the skin mites that eat from your pores and mate while you sleep. So almost 90% of humans have these mites living on them. Uh, They're passed down at birth. They are harmless. They live in your pores. They, you don't notice them. They're a fraction of a you know, millimeter, micrometer, whatever. Uh, at night, however, they come out of your pores and mate on your skin. Up until now, it was thought that they uh, accumulated their feces for their whole lives before releasing it upon their death, which could cause skin inflammation. However, that is not the case, says new research conducted by the University of Reading, the University of Valencia, the University of Vienna, and the National University of San Juan, all coming together for this breaking news in the Journal of Molecular Biology and Evolution. The mites 
do, in fact, have an anus. They have been unfairly blamed for all these skin conditions. In fact, they propose that rather than being a parasitic mite, they, in fact, might be symbiotic. Now, sadly, it turns out that because of their mating habits and uh, their sexual anatomy, (laughs) unfortunately, it looks like they are also going extinct. The lack of new exposure to potential mates that could add new genes, it's not turning out well for the mites. So enjoy your mites while you have them, and just know there is a lot going on when you go to bed at night, Jonah. So, a couple... Questions. Um, first uh-huh, of all, uh-huh. why do we have to have questions? Why do we want to talk about this anymore? Um, that was just disgusting. All right, well, I'll start with the, the Ohio State University thing. What is the grammatical rule that says you have to say the rather than yes, the? Yes, I was having the same thought. Um, it loses its punch if it's the yeah, Ohio State University. It, it bothers but all me. the football players, when they announce themselves this way, Say the right. Ohio State University. Um, Interesting. So uh, we'll we'll get our answers in the comments, and then um, on the might thing, I don't understand why they're going extinct just because um, there are no new frontier facial frontiers for them to conquer, or because their evolutions in stasis. Um, lots. Of, I mean, have you ever seen a horseshoe crab? Those things have looked like that for like. 40 million, 50 million, 100 million years, they were like stepped on by Tyrannosaurus rexes. And so like lots of things have halted their evolution and it doesn't mean they're going extinct. It doesn't mean that there are new, more innovative competing mites going on to their, onto people's faces. And I, I, I honestly thought that this was a, um, a wasted opportunity for, for a great headline about how mites mate right. But um, that's just me. <laughs> but did I mention that this is literally a quote from the research paper? The quote, all night mating sessions on your face. <laughs> yeah. And, and frankly, like I, if they do go extinct because they're um, they're not as robust in the um, facial bedroom, uh-huh. um, that's fine for me because I'm sort of a lesser of two weevils kind of guy. Oh, my God. Jonah's on fire. (laughs) On fire. So we were blaming these mites for skin problems, pore buildup. It turns out they might actually be cleaning our pores. uh, But, you know, I guess we'll know when they go extinct. We'll see. Uh, That's all the time we have. I know it's it's you can't believe we're not going to spend more time on the club mites. Um, But Steve is making a face like he is really considering whether to continue my contract. I mean, did Jonah really just say weevils? <laughs> the lesser like, of two weevils. That was in poor taste. I don't You don't right, get well, it? I... Poor taste? Come on, man. Uh, okay. The dad jokes. <laughs> uh, we'll have David back next week. He'll keep all this in line. <laughs> we know David doesn't like to discuss all night mating sessions. So uh, until then, you're stuck with this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hop into the comments section if you're a member of the Dispatch. Don't forget, we have Dispatch Lives for members on Tuesday nights where we do deep dives into, well, whatever we feel like. And otherwise, leave us a review or rating wherever you're getting this podcast. Thank you. Caleb, play us out with some Lionel Richie all night long. (laughs) (laughs) All night.
Wait, the January 6th hearings actually end? No. Are no. they done? No, they're not done. Good. Okay. We are actually recording on the same day as the DOJ episode, right. which should okay. have aired last week. I like, kind of had like. And then there are two thing. more that, are, that they've bumped that they are now having in July. And then there will be the trials by combat. Which I'm looking forward to. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. 